All right, greetings, Earthlings. This is Dave Smith coming to you with another episode of And Another Thing with Dave. Tonight, I would like to talk about homelessness and uh, the root of it, where it started, how it got to this place where it's now a national epidemic, 500,000 people. Estimated government estimates, so that's probably way underestimated. You know, government estimates 500,000 people sleeping outside every night. Um, I live in Santa Rosa, uh, California, Sonoma County. For some reason, we have the highest rate of homelessness of any suburb in the entire United States. Granted, you know, the, the weather's nice. It's not nice in the winter. You know, we get, you know, a handful of nights that are below freezing. It gets cold. It's been 40 degrees at night all week long this week. Um, but for some reason, there's been an explosion of homelessness here. Um, I don't know what it is. I don't know what's contributing to it. We did have a really horrendous fire in 2017. Um, about 4,500 homes, 4,500 homes were lost. Huge areas of the city were decimated. Um... But this is two years later now we're talking about. There's 450 people sleeping on a trail, on a biking trail. It's called the Joe Radota Trail. It's made the news, nationwide news recently. Um, I saw a video that somebody had posted on, on uh, Facebook and then on the Nextdoor app. And then I saw the same video on YouTube. So these people were, were pimping their video. And it was a video of them riding down the trail and showing how horrible it was. And it it was bad, right? And they, they stopped and, and filmed some guy that was shooting up in the middle of the daytime. And, and dwelled on that, right? you know, like to drive it home. And bam! You know, CBS, NBC, they were all about it. <laughs> but sensationalism aside, you know, this is an epidemic nationwide. Nationwide. It's, it's just coming to a head now as incoming inequality in the United States is the worst in a hundred years since the Great Depression. Um, since the Roaring Twenties, excuse me. So, and the Roaring Twenties, it was roaring for some. <laughs> the people on the top, the 1%, were killing it in the Roaring Twenties. But your average American was destitute. Uh, and we've reached that once again. With monopolies, lack of taxation. Anyway getting away from the from the point here we're talking about homelessness we're talking about the root of homelessness 
and uh, I want to give some history. You know, a lot of you know, I, I I've seen this thing explode. So I grew up in a little town called Novato, Novato, California. Right, idyllic little little town. Um, we had two people without housing, so two homeless people. Back then, we just called them bums. You know, there were two guys that just kind of were digging through garbage cans, and you know, as punk ass teenagers, when you needed some beer, you could always find these guys digging in the dumpster behind the grocery store and looking for the the food that they would throw out and stuff and so we would either buy them a sandwich or pack of cigarettes whatever they wanted and they would buy us beer um but there was two of them in the town right just two um round about 1985 I moved to San Francisco and big city right but very similar in regards to the homeless situation there was not there weren't any people sleeping in doorways there was one street that was like skid row right and you know it was populated with really really you know down and out severe alcoholics the type of people that, you know, you're looking at them straight in the eye, but eyes are going different directions and they're just glazed over and they just don't even see you. You know, they're blacked out or passed out with their eyes or whatever. But that kind of thing, like Skid Row, Skid Row drunks, right? There's a reason the band, you know, named themselves Skid Row. It, was a, it used to be a thing. Every city had one. You'd have one street. Oh, that's Skid Row over there. That's where the, you know, the people that can't keep it together sit on the sidewalk and drink their life away. Um, but round about 1986, that changed. It changed big time. Um, all of a sudden, you're seeing people sleeping in doorways. You're seeing a woman with two kids on the sidewalk begging for change. Or handout, not necessarily change. I was making good money as a luggage monkey, carrying, uh, carrying luggage at a hotel at the time. So, you know, you know, $1 bills came easy to me. So if, when I saw severe cases like that, I'd... You know, would give them a couple bucks. But you can't help everybody. And especially, it exploded. It absolutely exploded. So let's look at the root of this, right? So, um, Reagan's got this, for some reason, people think he was the greatest, blah, 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 you know, Republicans hold him up as if he is the best president. And I even I even saw somebody on Facebook post today that Reagan might be the greatest president of all time. I'm like, wow. Wow. All he did 
and I'm simplifying here, but all Reagan did really was deregulate, let corporations go hog wild, and then the taxpayers had to pay the the cost of corporations going hog wild with I'm gonna go through some through some of it here for you. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So Reagan's whole calling card was deregulation, right? Let the free market control everything. But there's no such thing as a free market when you have the oil industry and all oil companies grouping together to fix the market. That's not a free market. So that's so naive to think that we can have a free market because what history has shown us is that everybody wants to be king of the hill and we get we end up with monopolies controlling the entire and controlling and rigging and fixing the entire market and it's happened time and time and time again so Unbelievable. So, in 1981, Reagan repeals Jimmy Carter's Mental Health Systems Act. He defunded the entire mental health program and literally set homeless, set mental patients free. Like, basically, what didn't set them free, kicked them out. They couldn't stay there anymore. So now... Those people are on the streets. I don't know why so many of them en ended up in San Francisco. I guess liberal politics and, you know, it, it doesn't freeze there. So good place to live. There's a beach. You could sleep on the beach. Nice big park. You could sleep in the park. So there's a lot of reasons people would go to San Francisco. Mainly, you're not going to freeze to death. Um... Then the second horrible thing that, that Reagan unleashed with his deregulation was the savings and loan scandal and collapse. The worst financial disaster since the Great Depression. Um, this was 1996 through 1995. And uh, 1,043 out of 3,234 savings and loan associations went belly up or were seized by the government in this scandal. Charles Keating went to jail for it. I think. And uh, anyway... Then uh, number three on the list here is the Iran-Contra scandal. So Reagan and Bush Sr. wanted to fund two wars, right? So they wanted to fund Iran fighting against Iraq, which is ironic because we were supplying Iraq with weapons. As a matter of fact, we supplied Iraq with chemical weapons which is why when George Bush Jr. accused Saddam of having chemical weapons or weapons of mass destruction, there was actually documented proof that Iraq at one time did have weapons of mass destruction. Why? 
because we sold them to them so they could use them against Iran. And that's a whole other story, but one million people in Iran ended up suffering from the chemical weapons that we gave to Iraq back in the 1980s. Brutal. Brutal. But the Iran-Contra war was Reagan and Bush Sr. They wanted to fund two wars. Congress said, hell no, they weren't going to fund it. So they went dark, and they did it anyway. Against, directly against Congress's direct orders. George Bush Sr. was the head of the CIA at one time, so he's got all kinds of contacts in the dark world, right? So he set up a frickin' program where the CIA was smuggling coke into the United States, shutting down our radar systems on the Gulf of Texas, flying in and landing in, in uh, Mena, Arkansas, with 3.1 tons of cocaine in each plane load. Unbelievable. This is all documented. All documented. They took the uh, cocaine and then they sold it in the United States. So, like, to their own citizens. So, to, to you people who think, like, your government cares about you and they're fighting for your democracy and this and that... Dude, the CIA was flying 3.1 tons of coke per plane load, and they did it for a year into the United States, and then selling that blow to our citizens, to our people. They didn't do that in Europe or something, and then just take the money. No, they sold it to, to fucking Americans. Unbelievable. And then these people are still somehow considered patriots? Unbelievable. So they took the profits from the coke sales and they bought weapons to give to Iran because Congress didn't want to approve the funds. And they also sent weapons to... Uh, a rebel group in Nicaragua called the Contras. Now, the Contras were fighting to overthrow a legitimately, legitimately elected democratic government. Powering off. So, we're... Powering on. We're funding Surging. a military group that's goal is to overthrow a democracy. Paired. So here goes the whole bullshit of like, you know, waving the white flag, riding the white horse, the United States is here to protect democracy. No, we were destroying democracy in three countries at the same time with that one, with the one Iran-Contra scandal. So, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then some, some more details on the Iran-Contra uh, scandal. We, we stopped in Panama to refuel our planes. So, so, we were complicit with, or we, 
George Bush Sr. was complicit with Manuel Noriega, their president. So we ended up bombing Panama with cluster bombs, which is or against the you know con Geneva Conventions or whatever, killed twenty thousand people. And it basically, what I heard is that we were basically just wanted to test the weapon. Um, so we tested it on a shanty town, killed twenty thousand people. And then we seized their president, Manuel Noriega, put him in jail somewhere, and he's never been heard for, from since. He's either dead or in Guantanamo or, you know, whatever. But he'll never be heard from again because he was connected to Bush and this whole cocaine thing. It's unbelievable. So cocaine and weapons were flown in and out of Mena, Arkansas. Enter Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was governor of Arkansas during George Sr.'s smuggling campaign. Bill played ball with Bush and his cronies, and as a thank you for that, Bill Clinton was appointed president by the deep state. Look at the history. It's unbelievable. Like, really? Clinton? coming from Arkansas, the poorest state in the country, is going to become president? How? The fuck did he do? He didn't do shit. He didn't do anything noteworthy. As a matter of fact, he had a bunch of scandals while he was governor of uh, Arkansas. He somehow managed to gain control of all three branches of government while he was in control of Arkansas. So Bill either turned a blind eye or he's absolutely complicit in the cocaine smuggling operation that happened in Mena, Arkansas. Right? And the fact that he rose to notoriety right after that just makes sense that, well, he was complicit. I believe he was complicit. Um, I heard a tape recording of Bill Clinton's brother. Bill's brother was busted in a drug sting operation. The I, don't, I forget what it, it was like, the FBI, DEA, or some, whatever. But they set up a sting operation in a hotel room for a cocaine buy. And Bill Clinton's brother's a big cokehead, as is Bill Clinton. And... Bill's brother was recording saying, Bill likes Coke so much, we call him Hoover, as in Hoover vacuums. <laughs> so there you go. So maybe Bill was, you know, maybe maybe George Bush Sr. didn't have to twist Bill's arm so much to be involved in a cocaine smuggling operation because he was a big old cokehead. And apparently a total pedophile too, because... Now we know he's flown on Epstein's plane 26 times. But anyway, back to the story. So, these bastards basically created the, the crack cocaine epidemic with this whole Iran-Contra thing. Um, there was a warehouse in south-central Los Angeles that was raided by LAPD. It was being guarded by military MPs, but the LAPD raided it. It was it had twenty two tons of cocaine 
in this warehouse. The story was broken by Gary Webb of the San Jose Mercury News. He broke the story, and, well, guess what? He was later suicided. Yep. I think, I think he ended up shooting himself in the head twice. Seems like a tough feat. Twice. So, yeah, so here, I've got some, some uh, audio that I want to play for you. So here's Reagan talking about his, you know, his plan. Oh, sorry, we're having a little audio breakdown here. Powering off. Punitive tax policies and excessive and unnecessary regulations, plus government borrowing. Bear with me one moment. We're having a little audio, a uh, little tech, techno breakdown. That's all right. Powering on. Here Charging. we go. So here's Ronald Reagan breaking down his theory. Sorry about that. Here we go again. So here is Ronald Reagan breaking down his plan as Neither president. People tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. Punitive tax policies and excessive and unnecessary regulations, plus government borrowing, have stifled our ability to update plant and equipment. As government expands, liberty contracts. When capital investment is made, it's too often for some unproductive alterations demanded by government to meet various of its regulations. Our aim is to increase our national wealth so all will have more. But man is not free unless government is limited. So, yeah, that sounds great and everything, right? So man is not free unless government is limited. Um, unbelievable. But, so, here's another clip I need to play here. Let me find this for you. Four students were killed by national... 1970. Four students were killed by National Guard troops during a campus protest at Kent State University in Ohio. People were desperate for change, and they were desperate for financial stability. Ronald Reagan, former governor and Hollywood actor of the state of California, took the stage. This is from channel EST on YouTube. To his promises of big business and insured safety. As government regulations on corporations decreased, corruption ensued. The rich preyed off of the poor, taking advantage of their newly acquired power. As his policy of Reaganomics dominated American business, the wealth gap expanded greatly and the poor suffered drastically. Reagan especially neglected the needs of the homeless, claiming that they, quote, chose to be homeless and trusted that private organizations were enough to care for them. To Reagan, taking care of them was not the job of the federal government. Even pop culture reflected the consequences of Reagan's ideas. That greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed, you mark my words, will not only save 
they've told our paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. To make matters worse, Reagan failed to help the, the population Wall of Street people there. who needed it most. Vietnam veterans, home from the horrors of war, returned devastated to find that Reagan had cut most of the vital veteran aid programs once available to help them transition to civilian life. In particular, the removal of support to vets' outreach centers proved damaging, as veterans were no longer approached directly by vet services. Instead, veterans were expected to seek help themselves, which was more difficult as many did not know where to go. So now we end up with a bunch of veterans on the street. That was part of that influx, right? Took a number of years. But all of a sudden, because they don't know where to find services, if the services were available, and if, if the funds to those services weren't cut, which they were, so all of a sudden there's all these veterans on the street. Nine, at one point, 50% of the homeless were veterans. It's despicable. But yeah, support our troops, yeah! But not when they come home missing a limb. You know, not when they come home with with PTSD. You know, but support some rich... What, what support our troops means is support some rich asshole sending your kid to die in war for a corporate profit. <laughs> By 1980, unemployment among Vietnam soldiers increased by 44%. Veterans now made up 5.9% of the total unemployed population. Minority and younger vets fared even worse, as 17-20% to 20 of them remained jobless. In an attempt to eradicate the negative stereotype of the traumatized Vietnam soldier, Reagan's administration created the Vietnam Veterans Leadership Program. The VVLP's primary goal, however, was not to help returning soldiers, but to use propaganda to better the public's view of this unpopular war. Though he tried to display the veterans as proud and free of regrets, many soldiers suffered from high levels of distress. Some had PTSD, which Reagan ignored with an ignorantly positive mentality. Emotional instability and substance abuse often resulted in broken families and failed social interactions, leading many veterans to resort to the streets. Vietnam, you're, you're, you're actually a human being. You, you fight for a year and you spend a year in the bush, you literally turn into an animal. You don't even realize how much you change until you come back. He endured flashbacks. His marriage ended. Once again, footage from CBS. Exposure to Agent Orange. Seeking an escape, Gannon turned to alcohol. Reflective of his uneducated view of PTSD, Reagan also wrongfully approached mental illness in America. Reagan failed to understand mental health as a real medical condition that needed to be researched, and thus decided research was not worth funding. Reagan's leadership led to the mass deinstitutionalization of hospitals. As a result, many mentally ill patients, along with drug addicts, were discharged and pushed into housing units. Overnight, towns flowed with hundreds of mentally ill. Owners often took advantage of confused residents, cheating them of their money. When the time came for gentrification of these rundown towns, the mentally ill, who cannot pay the increased rent, were forced out of their homes into the streets. They say first they suffered through emptying and closing of hospitals. They say then the dumping of their relatives onto the streets. Then they had the withdrawal of funds for community-based programs, they say. They say in Illinois, because of a withdrawal of $18 million, uh, Governor Thompson has cut from mental health programs. They're now faced with the stoppage of research. 
Bowman, what would you tell these people? Well, I would look into all the things that they've, the charges they've made there to find out if all of these things are true and whether the uh, financial things that they mentioned there uh, are the reason for it, for those cases. I would uh, think that Governor Thompson would like to see that letter. So, you know, Reagan ended up being famous for being like the most senile president of all time, right? So who knows how there he was ever. But the Gipper, you know, for him, for him to go down in history as like the greatest president in all time or a good president even, that is such a crock of shit. And history is showing that that is not the case. Not the case at all. All of our economic woes, you can you can lay in his lap since since the eighties. Every collapse, he set it up. Not to mention, him and Bush had their hands in overthrowing just about every democratically elected government in Central and South America, so that they could put a puppet in place that would give preferential treatment to American corporations. All about American corporations, not American people. So when you hear American interests, that's not you. That's McDonald's and Coca-Cola and Exxon. That's not you. Amazon. That's not you. They don't give a fuck about you at all. So here's a here's a um, a clip. Tucker Carlson had this gentleman on his show talking about the root of homelessness, and the guy explains it to Tucker. But Tucker can't handle the truth. This is hilarious. Check this out. Well, California, our biggest, formerly most prosperous state, is increasingly a place that's impossible to live if you are not rich. Housing costs are sky high. Public schools are failing. The state's chief concern seems to be enabling illegal immigrants and enlarging its homeless population, which it's very good at. John Stossel recently visited San Francisco and found officials working hard there to erect a homeless utopia. Part of it. Francisco is generous. It offers street people food stamps, free shelter, train tickets, and $70 a month in cash. San Francisco is just a good place to hang out. Like many, these two come here from out of town. Do you like the lifestyle? Of course I do. As you just heard, they love the freedom of not having to follow the rules. So here Tucker is painting the picture of like, oh, look at this liberal utopia and how it's gone to hell. Look at these frickin' people. They just don't want to do anything. They're lazy. Like, so he talked to two people and then that police officer that he was talking to was like the biggest, fattest, like stereotypical donut-eating cop you've ever seen in my life. I've known a bunch of SFPD. They're good people. None of them have talked smack about homeless like that. So he found somebody (laughs) 
that would support that view for a minute. But let's listen to the whole story because that story wears thin. So the homeless stay on the streets and every day new people arrive. Normal people are just about sick of it. A new poll finds that 53% of Californians and critically 63% of millennials living in California want to flee. Ethan Behrman is someone who's staying in California because he hosts a radio show there. He joins us tonight. So, I mean, I got to say, there's no blaming the right for this. It's a one-party state for good or ill. In this case, it looks like ill. And so at some point, do you think, like, what liberal lunacy gave birth to this feudal disaster called California? Has it, has it caused any soul-searching for you? Absolutely. The fifth biggest economy in the world, uh, and you talk about the homeless problem, we can look to Ronald Reagan, the conservative Republican, when he was governor, who turned everybody loose from the psychiatric institutions uh -huh. and the abuses that they... So I just have to pause that, because Tucker Carlson is like, so what liberal lunacy has caused this? And he's basically blaming this guy. <laughs> the guy tells him it's Ronald Reagan, and he laughs in his face, and goes, uh-huh. Yeah, now he's going to explain it to him. They had in the early 20th century, but instead of having a plan to get people the proper care they needed in the neighborhoods... He let them free, and so now when, we have when, I'm just wondering, just, I'm sorry, let's just pause really quick. When was that? Oh, was that like 50 years ago? Like it matters when it was. Yeah, it was 50 years ago. It set the, it, 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 <laughs> oh my God, it laid the foundation for the epidemic that we have today. That he was governor of California? Yeah. Okay. And, so, and it's only gotten worse because of the laws, but we have new leadership now, uh, uh -huh. Tucker, that is actually addressing the problem. So you're saying that the homeless problem in Los Angeles and San Francisco, not just, but mostly in those two cities, is the fault of a, someone who is dead and hasn't been governor in 50 years. That's really the answer? That is the, that's the root. That's the genesis of it. When okay. we decided that we can't keep people who need mental health care... Uh, conservatorship is the term around it. There are a fair percentage that John Stossel, of course, found two people that he could use as an example, as an anecdote to prove how bad it is. But the point is this. We have people who need mental health care. And because of what well, Governor Reagan did and what the federal courts have ensured <laughs> since then is we have a hard time with it. State Senator Scott gonna, Wiener I mean, actually has new legislation. You and I both know that closing down the sanitariums and mental hospitals was a liberal project from right. beginning to end. Reagan was the governor. He signed it. Shouldn't have. I agree. But that if you're blaming Ronald Reagan for modern-day homelessness... In Reagan California, was the governor. He signed it. I agree. And he dismisses that? Maybe my dumb ideas had something to do with this. I mean, honestly. No, because now we do have new ideas. So State Senator Scott Wiener has a new bill that's been passed. Uh, experimenting with a new conservatorship program. We have Mayor London Breed in San Francisco and Mayor Eric Garcetti in Los Angeles addressing it head on. Mayor Garcetti actually got funding to finally build some housing that was a requirement from the federal courts before we could do something about getting people off the streets. Wait, so, so unbelievable. So Tucker Carlson is just hell-bent on sticking to his pre preconceived belief. Right. Even when faced with knowledge, even when when faced with facts. And, and this one is overwhelming. So, so, Mayor, just, just, just to be clear, so you're saying, hold on, you're saying very quick, the driving problem is profound mental illness. 
But we want to put profoundly mentally ill, schizophrenics, for example, in their own housing unsupervised. So that's a good idea, you think? No. So here he just tears down. Instead of trying to meet him halfway, he tears his idea down and like, oh, so you're going to house the homeless. Oh, and most of them are mentally ill. So you're going to house mentally ill people by themselves and you think that's a good idea? Oh, so Tucker, are you now condoning and saying that Ronald Reagan fucked up when he closed the mental institutions because the people with mental health issues should actually be able to go into a mental institution? Oh, I think Tucker just sealed his own bullshit, you know, argument right there. Um, boom. Because what's he saying? You... Either he's saying that, or he's saying, fuck them, leave them on the streets. One of the two. No, it's a, it's a bifurcated problem. You have mental illness on one hand. Oh. We also have the issue of a okay. severe shortage of housing, and the courts prohibited anything being done until we got oh. housing built. Mayor Garcetti's working on it. So here this guy's explaining it to Tucker, and Tucker's, oh, oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh, right, from Reagan, 50 years ago. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's how Reaganomics trickled down. The money stayed up, and the shit trickled down. I saw that firsthand. I saw homelessness explode in San Francisco in 1986. I saw it go from, from a skid row to, boom, people sleeping in every available doorway. And now it's just... I haven't lived there since 2009, but now it's just atrocious if you drive through there. There's tent cities. There's like, the last time I was there, I saw somebody lifting their butt up to shit on a shrub that was growing along the side of the main library right across from City Hall. Right across from City Hall. They can't even clean that up. That's how bad the problem is. So, and it's about money. It's not about who's a le oh well in California's liberal blah 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 blah. No, it's about money. All the federal funding has been cut off. The funding for HUD, you know, housing and urban development has been way cut off. So they demolished these low-income housing projects that used to exist. And then they just sold off the property to developers. And those developers built nicer shit. So those people just went away. But went away where? Right? If you're in federally subsidized housing, that whole program gets removed. All those houses get demolished nationwide. Where do you go? And we wonder where the homeless came from. So those public housing projects, the low-income public housing projects, that was public land paid for with public taxpayer money. The cities then sold that to private developers at least I'm talking about San Francisco here, 
sold that to private developers, and they then build million-dollar condominiums, skyscrapers with million-dollar condominiums. So, the taxpayer is the one getting totally bent over in this whole equation. Unbelievable. So, society plummets, right? Society plummets. You don't want to walk down the street, so you'll drive or get food delivered to your million-dollar condo because you don't want to walk down the street because there's all these homeless people. Like, wow, it's unbelievable. But the but the one percent just since two thousand eight, just since the crash of two thousand eight, the one percent, top one percent, have doubled their wealth. Doubled. Right? So as everybody else is recovering from a quote unquote recession, they're manipulating markets, doing all this shit, not getting taxed. Doubled their wealth since 2008. What the fuck is that? 12 years? 12 years. Doubled their wealth. Wow. So, unbelievable. I got another clip for you here. This is about the savings and loan scandal. So, Reagan deregulated. Right. So then what happened? Well, Wall Street savings and loans and banks went went hog wild. Savings and loans used to be a thing. And I guess they were exempt from the regulation of a regular bank. So guess what? They went hog wild and uh, made a bunch of money and left the American taxpayer holding the fucking holding the bag at a tick at at a, at a, what what's the ticket 132 billion dollars so the largest financial collapse since the great depression caused directly by Reagan's re deregulation so these people start speculating and investing in super shady things so to continue with the savings and loans, sorry, had to take a little break there for a second. <clears throat> Unbelievable. Reagan set set the stage for financial collapse, and it happened. The largest collapse since the Great Depression. So here's a clip I want to play. Um, this is from The Real News. The Black Finance and Fraud Report. Welcome to the Real News Network. I'm Jessel Noor in Baltimore, and welcome to this latest edition of the Black Financial and Fraud Report. We're now joined by Bill Black. He's an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's a white-collar criminologist, former financial regulator, author of the book, The Best Way to Rob the Bank is to Own One, and he's a regular contributor to the Real News. Thanks so much for joining us again, Bill. Thank you. So, Bill, what do you have for us this week? Well, I did a column recently, uh, prompted, of course, by the uh, death of Charles Keating, who was the most infamous uh, fraud running Lincoln Savings and Loan, in which I talked about the 10 lessons we should learn. And then I thought about it some more 
realized I'd left out uh, one of the really important lessons, and that was uh, the importance of Glass-Steagall. So Glass-Steagall is a law that we passed uh, in the Great Depression in 1933 in conjunction with creating federal deposit insurance that said, look, we're giving this federal subsidy to the banking operations. It doesn't make any sense uh, to create an unfair competition where the bank could own a bakery store, for example, and compete against another bakery that didn't have that federal subsidy. Plus, those kinds of investments are riskier, and there's this built-in conflict of interest. If uh, you're lending to a company and it gets in trouble, you may be tempted to buy stock in that company, try to keep it from failing, and vice versa. And for all these reasons, they separated uh, commerce and, and uh, banking and said investment banks can own equity uh, interests. In other words, they could own uh, stock or they could own entirely uh, a piece of property or a spa or anything they want, uh, but they don't get federal deposit insurance. Commercial banks can't do those things. And that worked brilliantly for 50 plus years, but one of the proofs of that was the savings and loan debacle because savings and loans were not subject to the same Glass-Steagall limitations. They could do whatever their state... Glass-Steagall, that's what I forgot to mention. So that's, that's key here. So now here he's going to break down Glass-Steagall for us. This was put in place after the collapse and the Great Depression as a safeguard to separate what these banks could do. So investment banks couldn't... Uh, anyway... He explains it better. <laughs> there was a separation of, of um, like, your deposit banks couldn't, the, the bank that we go to couldn't take your deposit and then invest it in sketchy um, prospecting, right? So investment banks and deposit banks were basically separated. Savings banks were separated as far as what they could do in Glass-Steagall. So he's going to explain Glass-Steagall to you. And then just as a footnote, Bill Clinton removed Glass-Steagall. Uh, said they could do. And California famously said, you can do as many uh, direct investments as you want. Maximum volume. Ownership interest. So you could own real estate. You could own you know, Wendy's franchises. Uh, you could own windmill farms and anything that you wanted. Uh, and that ended disastrously. And one of the leading practitioners of that was Charles Keating. And it uh, ended badly in proving all of the reasons why Congress was smart enough to pass Glass-Steagall in the first place. So when Lincoln's direct investments got into trouble, uh, that's what they did, is they made massive loans, not to the troubled property, but to supposed buyers for those properties. And, of course, these buyers were just straw men. They weren't real, um, but they got real money, and that uh, caused losses to grow massively at Lincoln Savings. But because they supposedly purchased these properties for way above uh, the value on the books, they magically, like an alchemist, transformed base metals into gold, or in this case, they transformed real losses 
into supposed massive gains. And those massive gains slowed the takeover of Lincoln Savings, allowing it to become the most expensive failure. But they also helped uh, Charles Keating loot uh, Lincoln Savings, uh, and they were used to try to discredit the regulators. Look, you know, look, you can criticize these assets, but they turned out to be great. And uh, even as early as 1986, some members of Congress uh, had figured out this was a bad thing and were trying to, uh, in essence, use Glass-Steagall-like prohibitions on savings and loans. And Keating at that point got uh, Senator Cranston, one of the Keating Five, uh, to secretly put a hold on that legislation uh, and keep it from coming up uh, for any kind of a vote. Well, after the disaster of uh, Lincoln Savings, Congress changed its mind and passed rules that pretty much uh, applied Glass-Steagall uh, to savings and loans. They did it in a, a convoluted way, but that was essentially the effect and that, again, worked very well in savings and loans right up until uh, Congress and the Clinton administration, uh, at the behest of the banks, agreed to get rid of the effective parts of Glass-Steagall. And this was one of the things, not the biggest, but one of the things that contributed to the disaster. So... Boom, he breaks it down pretty succinctly. Thank you, Bill Clinton, for repealing Glass-Steagall and for NAFTA. You neocon bastard. And your power whore wife. Horrible couple. Horrible. Horrible. Um... When it so, came to public affairs, 13 continued to cap... This is about the Iran-Contra affair. And this is from... This is called 13 on YouTube. Iran-Contra scandal coverage on secret government pioneers of 13 the drama of real life stories and i still to this day council don't see anything wrong with taking the ayatollah's money and sending it to support the nicaraguan freedom fighters executive producer al perlmutter and journalist bill moyers broadcast the secret government an in-depth and uncompromising expose of the iran contra scandal and covert CIA operations leading up to it. I'm Bill Moyers, and in this personal essay, we'll look at that government in the shadows. Next week, Congress will publish a report on the Iran-Contra scandal. My colleagues and I have been investigating it ourselves. I've been waiting for something to happen. We led off the program with a uh, song by Jackson Brown called Lives in the Balance, which very graphically showed the implications of warfare, weapons, provision, and so on. When you know that you've seen it before, where a government lies to a people, and a country is drifting to war. The story broke one year ago. The United States had defied its own embargo. In November 1986, National Security Council staff member Oliver North came into the public spotlight. 
the Iran-Contra affair uncovered a secret Reagan administration program to sell arms to Iran and divert the proceeds to support the anti-communist rebels, or Contras, in Nicaragua. Those charges are utterly false. Senator what they're not mentioning is the cocaine smuggling operation that paid for it all because Congress wasn't going to pay for it. So Congress didn't want to sell weapons to Iran. So how did they get the weapons that they sold to Iran? They got them by selling cocaine on the streets of, San, on the, streets of, of the United States. John Kerry of Massachusetts, a veteran of the Vietnam War, is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. They were willing to literally put the Constitution at risk uh, because they believed somehow there was a higher order of things, that the ends do in fact justify, are justified by the means. Looking back, it's stunning how easily the Cold War enticed us into surrendering popular control of government to the national security state. We've turned the war powers of the United States over to where we're never really sure who or what they're doing, or what it costs, or who is paying for it. An open society cannot survive a secret government. The program was a scathing report by Bill Moyers. It was a, uh, an essay, a uh, commentary, as only Bill Moyers could do. We had the usual complaints that said that public money should not be used to do programs like this. But in actuality, it was the kind of program that public television was meant to do and should be doing, and should be doing more of. And you'll never find it on commercial television. You would never be able to get a program like this on the air, but that's public television. Yeah, and that's why funding to public television has been cut so drastically. All right, so now we'll cut to Tom Hartman and how Tom Hartman ties William Barr into all of this. Wow! So, enter the Trump administration, tied all the way back to the Iran-Contra scandal. Well, he does have Elliot Abrams and uh, Michael Bolton, or Michael Bolton, uh, what the hell, John Bolton. <laughs> Michael <laughs> John Bolton. John Bolton and Elliot Abrams, those two bastards, are war criminals, and they would be in jail for life, except George Bush Sr. pardoned them. So Tom Hartman's going to talk about this. About uh, William Barr, this, if, you, if you go to the New York Times, if you have a subscription to the New York Times, you can search these old uh, papers. And uh, David Johnston, I wonder if that's David K. Johnston, wrote a piece on December 25th, 1992. It was a screaming headline across the entire top of the New York Times, right? The front page headline, all caps, Bush pardons six in Iran affair, aborting a Weinberger trial, prosecutor assails cover-up. It's the exact headline. And the article then goes on, it says, Mr. Weinberger was scheduled to stand trial on January 5th on charges he lied to Congress about his knowledge of the arms sales to Iran and efforts by under, other countries to help underwrite the Nicaraguan rebels, a case that was expected to focus on Mr. Weinberger's private notes that contain references to George Herbert Walker Bush's endorsement of the secret shipments to Iran. You get this? Weinberger was about to rat out the president. 
the president was still the president. It continues, the story continues. In one remaining facet of the inquiry, the independent prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, plans to review a 1986 campaign diary kept by Mr. Bush. Mr. Walsh has characterized the president's failure to turn over the diary until now as misconduct. But in a single stroke, Mr. Bush swept away one conviction, three guilty pleas, and two pending cases, virtually de decapitating what was left of Mr. Walsh's efforts, which began in 1986. Mr. Walsh bitterly condemned President Bush's action, charging that, quote, the Iran-Contra cover-up, which has continued for more than six years, has now been completed. The prosecutor charged that Mr. Weinberger's efforts to hide his notes may have, quote, forestalled impeachment proceedings against President Reagan and formed part of a pattern of, quote, deception and obstruction. On December 11th, Mr. Walsh said he discovered misconduct in Mr. Bush's failure to turn over what the prosecutor said were the president's own highly re relevant contemporaneous notes despite repeated requests for such documents. So this is huge. He's basically saying right there that if the Reagan government didn't break the law by not giving... So the Reagan government broke the law and did not give documents. If they did not do that, Reagan would have been impeached, is what he just said. As Mr. Walsh said, in light of President Bush's own misconduct, we are gravely concerned about his decision to pardon others who lied to Congress and obstructed official inquiries, investigation, excuse me. And then this, uh, from the same month, this is from December 11th, uh, 1992. It's, a, uh, it's an op-ed in the New York Times. It's titled, Mr. Barr's Cloud Growing Darker. By the way, it was William Barr who was Attorney General at the time that uh, George Herbert Walker Bush did those pardons, which ended the special counsel's investigation of Iran-Contra. And this is just a couple of weeks earlier. Could, uh, could Attorney General William Barr be trusted to produce a credible examination of his own administration's possible criminal aid to Iraq before the Persian Gulf War? The answer is worse than no. Far from allaying public doubts about the Bush administration improprieties, this squalid exercise inflames them. And this is about whether uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was uh, giving, uh, you know, chemical weapons and other things like that to Saddam Hussein and calling it, quote, agricultural aid. It was a major scandal. And it Which we now know he absolutely was, and one million people in, in Iran suffered from that. Shut down. Again, William Barr, the attorney general at the time, shut the stuff down with, with cover-ups and pardons. Expect to see the same if Barr is made attorney general. It's just that simple. So, <laughs> unfortunately, he was made attorney general. The fix is in. The swamp is overflowing. Unfucking believable. So, homelessness was created. It didn't just happen overnight. Do you know? It's throwing mental patients on the street. It's throwing away your veterans. It's the housing, you know, the, the creating the housing bubble, you know, creating the savings and loan scandal, stealing people's money, creating the housing bubble 20 years later, stealing people's houses. Wow. And we don't have a single program 
We don't have a single fucking program to teach somebody how to fill out a job application. To teach people how to balance a checkbook. You know. You, you so we have to have a plan in how to deal with homelessness, right? Because it was created. So it didn't just happen out of nowhere. So And it's not going to go away on its own. It's getting way worse. So we need to have a plan. So we need to have facilities. You can't just give somebody a home and then expect everything to be okay, right? So a certain a certain percentage of the homeless are mental, uh, have mental issues. Those people should have resources. In the richest country in the world, those, those people should have resources. There should be a place for them, right? People with addiction issues. There should be places they can go if they want to where they can get education to clean up and then go to a job training program. And this is the key. This is, this is where it gets really key. There has to be a mechanism to get people off the street. So, like Colorado, I think it was, started paying homeless people to sweep the streets. Imagine that. Imagine that. So you open up jobs that don't require any, you know real skills, you offer those as, you know, as entry-level jobs. You have a job training program, a skills training program. So here's how you use Microsoft Word. Here's how you write a resume. Here's how you fill out a job application. Here's how you balance your checkbook. Here's how you go grocery shopping to get the most nutrients for the amount of money that you got, you know. Simple life skills shit. We don't get that. Do you ever wonder why we don't get that? It's not by accident. It's not by accident. So you have to provide an infrastructure. There's this wonderful example uh, of a uh, a solution that could be, uh, you know, like a cookie cutter replicated throughout the nation. And it's going on in southern Oregon. It's called Opportunity Village. And so what they did is they got land that was owned by the county. They got the county to donate that land. So they got the land for free. They put home, like, uh, tiny house shelters. So, like, they're not quite tiny homes. They're more like, there's three sides to them. So you're not in the elements, but you're still kind of, you know, sleeping bag in it. But that's a temporary facility, you know, for up to 18 months for people. And then next door to it, they have what's called, so that's Opportunity Village. The next door, they have what's called Emerald Village. And this is affordable housing. So after you transition out of the homeless shelter, well, where do you transition to, right? Our society doesn't think like that because it's run by the corporations. So what they did in Emerald Village is there's houses, tiny houses, a tiny house village. Once again, a brilliant vision. They got tiny house contractors to donate a bunch of tiny houses. 
right? So it looks, so you can go there and view 50 different kinds of tiny houses. They're all different. They're not cookie cutter. So because of that, the contractors viewed it as a marketing opportunity. Well, everybody's going to see my tiny house and they might want, you know, work from me. So, and it's a write-off, yada, 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 but works out fantastic. So they got $1.4 million worth of free tiny houses, right? They ended up having to build a bunch too, but out of 36, they got 21 donated. So then the rent is fixed. It's a co-op. You don't own anything, but you are a shareholder, stakeholder in the co-op, and you have rent control. So basically, once you move into one of these transitional houses, you can live there, and it's 250 or $300 a month, depending on the size of the one you want, for the rest of your life. It's never going to go up. Imagine that. Imagine that. You know, that's what we need to work on. So, and, and then we should work on something also, a springboard from there, where people could actually buy their own tiny house and establish equity, right? So, it's just a reworking of the puzzle, you know? I mean, the the, the system's rigged, the game is up, End-stage capitalism is what they're calling it. Casino capitalism. The house of cards is coming down. You know. I mean, I, it, what more can I say? Since 2008, the top 1% have doubled their wealth. Everybody else is working their ass off. So... We'll come, we'll come back with more on this topic. This is a heated topic right now, especially where I am here in Sonoma County, Northern California. Anyway, peace be with you, fellow Earthlings. This has been Dave Smith with And Another Thing with Dave.